All right, how is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Rahul Raina, who is one of the co-founders of TRM Labs. Welcome to the show. How is it going? Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's going great. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I have a couple of interviews today and the conversation has been so good and it makes me super stoked for this conversation. So I'm ready to roll. And with that, let's just kind of dive right into what you're working on. Can you give everyone an idea of what TRM is? Yeah, so at TRM, we build software that prevents money laundering and fraud for cryptocurrencies. So any, our customers are basically, you know, banks, exchanges, basically any financial institution that's required by law to make sure that the money that's flowing in and out of their systems are clean. Um, and when I say clean, I mean that it hasn't been, uh, you, know, you know, sourced via things like child trafficking, you know, weapons trafficking, narcotics, et cetera. And so as our customers are either directly engaging in cryptocurrencies or facilitating the buying or selling um, or indirectly exposed to cryptocurrencies via their customers, um, you know, they need a tool like TRM to help manage and mitigate that risk. And so, you know, we basically help our customers manage and mitigate the risk associated with cryptocurrencies. So I want to dive into who are the types of customers that you have today? And I think something I'm also very interested in is as cryptocurrency grows, as we're still in the infancy years, who do you imagine your customers will be tomorrow? Uh, and that's, a, that's a question that we think a lot about in terms of like where, who our customers will be tomorrow. Uh, but in terms of like today, a lot of our customers are, you know, cryptocurrency businesses. Um, so businesses that are in some way uh, facilitating, you know, the buying and selling cryptocurrencies and then also financial institutions, uh, traditional financial institutions uh, like banks. Uh, so those are sort of like our two, our, our two big customer segments uh, within the financial institution space, sort of what I would call crypto financial institutions and then traditional uh, financial institutions. Um, and, and they're all world, you know, I think, I think I'm, we're on at least three continents, if not more. Um, and so that's, that's tremendously exciting. And I think that will be um, a, a customer base and a customer set that we'll be serving for years to come. Uh, to answer your second question in terms of where this goes in the future, uh, I think that's, that story is still to be written. Um, what I'm excited about is in this future where sort of, everyone effectively becomes their own bank to a certain degree, or at least in a world where people start doing a lot more peer-to-peer transfer uh, that's truly uh, global and um, much less decentralized. Uh, I think you're gonna see uh, people needing to basically, you know, and businesses uh, needing sort of tools to manage and and mitigate some of the risk associated with transacting globally in a peer-to-peer manner. So it's almost like, you know how like you have a Stripe API that like helps make sure you can accept payments. 
in the future, you might have sort of TRM sort of plugging in to make sure that the money that you're sending and receiving is safe uh, as you're trying to transact globally with uh, people you may not know all the time. I think that this is extremely good timing, I, I guess, in the market, because something that I'm paying attention to a lot is what's happening in media and what's happening in podcasting, where the sponsorship and the advertising model is kind of going a little bit downhill and it's being replaced slowly with subscription and being funded by your uh, kind of your own community, your own users and not uh, not. Uh, not uh, sponsors or advertisers. I'm curious, like, is this a trend that you spend much or any time thinking about? Um, and if not, wh what are some trends that you feel like you're latching onto, or not so much trends, but kind of things that are happening in the industry? Um, what, are, what are some of these that you're latching onto um, that you think is going to help build this into a, into a, you know, a big company, a sustaining company? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the biggest trend is that crypto is here and it's here to stay. Right. Like, um, you know, and, and so um, in, in, in the way we look at it is, you know, the biggest trend is that the genie's out of the bottle and people now have this idea of like decentralized uh, currencies that could be sort of traded globally all over the world. And that's an extremely powerful idea. And there'll be multiple iterations that will happen over time. Bitcoin will not necessarily be the first and, and last. Um, and and, and that's just a, a huge shift in the way we think about money and who controls money, who accesses money, and, 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 and how money flows throughout the economy and the world. And um, yeah, and I think that's the single biggest thing uh, we're we are sort of catching on to is, is really the, the growth uh, in that trend. Um, and I think the second thing is just, you know, the need for people to feel safe, right? And, and I think that never goes away. And that's sort of like a trend that's been there for a long time. But the, the fact that people want to feel safe and know that they can uh, trust the people they're you know, dealing with and, and, and whether that's through payments or uh, companies or customers, whoever that may be. And so I think those two trends taken together, which is like this long-term trend of people wanting to feel safe and governments wanting to feel safe um, along with you know, this rise in, in, in decentralized currents, uh, I think both of them put together are extremely powerful. I agree 100%. Um, I'd love to get an idea of uh, what, what it's been like in the last, well, one, an idea of how long you've been working on this company. The reason I ask is because the last, you know, three years have been, crazy for crypto and i had a uh, i had another crypto founder come on um uh, like 10 i don't know like uh, two weeks ago three weeks ago sean don from coin tracker and we were talking mm -hmm. all about what's been going on with cryptocurrency in 2017 2018 and now 2019 and what's the kind of prediction for the future um, i'd love an idea of uh, to get your idea of what's been going on with cryptocurrency since 2017 and where do you predict it is now and where is it uh, where is it going as an industry yeah, um, I, I, I think prediction game is always a hard one. I, I think, I think all I can say is like we're very early days uh, in sort of the adoption cycle of cryptocurrencies, um, and the trend only looks to be continuing to go upward. If you if you discount everything but price, 
basically, if you just count every, if you just count price, you look at every other metric in terms of people's awareness, people's willingness to buy, um, you know, uh, governments sort of like thinking about and, and, and sort of in some cases implementing uh, cryptocurrencies. I think every other metric has been trending upward. I think if, and so I think, you know, people always look at price and be like, oh, well, price is down and, and things are therefore, you know, gonna die. Um, I think if you step back and you say like, let me look behind the curtain and uh, the trends uh, consistently look positive. I think there was a poll that was done in, uh, in late 2017 and then in 2019. Uh, uh, and it basically surveyed like 2000 US adults. Uh, it was like by Harris poll or something. And basically every like, you know, uh, awareness across all age groups from like 65 plus to like 18 to 34, um, like purchase intent, like how likely are you to buy Bitcoin next year was higher. Um, and despite all like the negative price news. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then, and then, and then you sort of merge that with the trends of like people, you know, not using traditional banks and going after like these neo banks and, and so people's willingness to sort of adopt new financial products is, is just at an all time high. And, and so I'm, I'm, optimistic about the future and, and where this is going yeah absolutely um I, I think one one other question i have within this sphere is i'd love to hear why you decided to kind of get started with trm labs and uh hear a little bit of the origin of the story um of the, of the why behind the company yeah um so I guess I'll start with the, with the why we started uh, TRM and, and specifically why we decided to work on this problem. You know, Esteban, my co-founder, and I basically looked at this problem, uh, looked at blockchain and cryptocurrencies and, 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 you know, realized that this is a truly paradigm-changing technology, right? This idea that people can transact trustlessly all over the world, um, and have a, a digital, like whether you want to look at it from a payments perspective, a digital gold perspective, um, it was a truly novel technology and, and, and almost at the scale of the internet, right? Maybe, maybe, you know, people can debate that back and forth, but almost at the scale of the internet. And so our, our thing was like, why aren't more people using this and how do we make sure that this can like adoption and, and sort of innovation in this space accelerates. And as we sort of saw, you know, the 2017 sort of hype and then, you know, uh, and then, you know, the subsequent sort of aftermath, we were looking at, you know, why, why is this struggling? And the biggest thing we saw was like, people didn't have uh, a way to feel safe. They were sort of like, I'm afraid of crypto. Uh, governments were afraid of it. Um, you know, companies uh, were afraid of it. And then ultimately consumers don't have access to it because you know, governments and companies are, are not giving them those services. And so we asked ourselves, you know, what will be the thing, the highest leverage thing that we can do that would like accelerate adoption of this technology on which hundreds and thousands of entrepreneurs will innovate on, right? And, and, and so for us, it, you know, after a little bit of soul searching, the answer sort of was like, we have to do something around compliance um, to make sure that, you know, we 
before governments and companies and consumers will adopt this at any meaningful scale, you know, infrastructure like TRM needs to exist so that people can feel safe and secure uh, in transacting and using cryptocurrencies and to fully, you know, enjoy all the benefits that it can offer. Uh, and so that sort of like was our thinking as to why we decided to work on this problem. It's truly in our, our thinking, you know, there's a whole bunch of innovation that entrepreneurs and are doing in terms of like protocols and, and, you know, privacy and all this good stuff. Uh, and then, you know, what we thought about is like in, to complement that in order to really accelerate adoption, you will need some sort of the infrastructure that we think we're building. We almost view ourselves as like the plumbing, right? The, the ugly plumbing that needs to happen uh, in order to really drive mass scale adoption. Uh, and so that's why we're really excited about working on this problem. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I love to hear the why behind companies. Um, so I appreciate you sharing. My, my last question specific to TRM is, you know, if you, you, you mentioned earlier and so did I that it's sometimes like hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, but I do think it's a lot easier as a founder to just imagine what could be or what could become uh, less of like predicting, which maybe they're the same thing, who knows. But if you could imagine what TRM will turn into in a decade or two decades, I'd love to just get a little insight into the big vision for the company and hear what it could become. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think I view TRM sort of in phases. Right, I think, so the near term, I think is we're serving sort of crypt, like new crypto businesses and crypto entrepreneurs and then traditional sort of financial institutions uh, and, and really just providing sort of the trust uh, layer on top of um, what I would say, you know, uh, uh, on, on top of crypto. And then, and as we go sort of into like past the next five, 15, 10, 15 years, and you go further out from there, there's gonna be a tremendous amount of innovation. And again, that's so hard to predict, but I think generally, and that's gonna drive more privacy. Um, and, and that's gonna drive sort of new types of financial assets that more people have access to. And my quick question for TRM is gonna be, you know, in a world that's more private, in a world that's, uh, more peer-to-peer -peer, um, in a world that's more global, you know, what what will sort of trust and and security look like, right? How do you find the right balance between maintaining trust uh, and, and security and safety with um, sort of the, the needs of private peer-to-peer -peer, uh, value transfer? And I think in that layer, I think, companies sort of have, going to have to go through another sort of innovation spurt where we're going to have to really think about how do we, what kind of techniques, tools, um, uh, and products that we invent uh, for both consumers and businesses uh, so that in this new world that's more private and more peer-to-peer -peer and global, people can still feel safe and prevent, you know, the bad actors from really exploiting, um, exploiting and sort of ruining uh, the party for everyone else. And, and so uh, that's sort of like what I view as the next phase of like uh, truly private peer-to-peer -peer, uh, transactions and finding that mix. 
All right. I, I love that. And as mentioned, I do think it's very good timing um, of what's going on in the market. So, so congrats on that. Um, something I want to shift over a little bit to is talking about uh, what you mentioned uh, before we started recording, which is something that, that you're interested in, something that you've done that you're good at, is, is building products and specifically uh, building MVP, shipping your first version of the product. Um, I want to start high level and then we can kind of drill down into yeah. specific areas. Yeah. Um, but kind of to start, you know, let's say you're talking to a founder who has an idea and they say, I got to hire this many developers and I have this budget. I got to fundraise this much, et cetera. Um, you know, what would you tell them and how would you suggest maybe they, they get started in like potentially a different way, kind of the more way, more way that you alluded to when we first started talking. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll answer that with an anecdote. I think we have an article out there. Um, I think that Esteban, my co-founder, uh, he wrote and, and it's really good. It basically talks about our idea where, um, you know, don't pick a product, pick a market and iterate. Um, and that's the title. And, and basically there we go through our story, right. Where, um, we originally started with a game, you know, when Esteban and I first entered the blockchain space, our mission was always to like find the highest leverage way to drive adoption for crypto. Like, like a technology is no good if it's not used by a lot of people, if it's not actually affecting, like the world in, at scale, right? Like, like if I'm providing privacy or if I'm providing peer-to-peer commerce for 10 people, it's almost like irrelevant. What, what really matters is like billions of people in the most vulnerable areas of the world are using this technology. And so when we first started, uh, we actually started with a game and our vision with this game uh, was we're like, you know, everyone's doing crypto and, um, but they're doing it wrong because they're trying to like go through crypto by speculation and finance which is you know by definition exclusionary because not everyone has, everyone has money to speculate and gamble and two it's scary right like who wants to like think of this as money right um uh, like at first glance and so when we first started uh in in the fairly blockchain space as our entrepreneurs we were already interested you know back in 2015 or 2013 uh area time like just as like investors and things like that, but just truly as entrepreneurs in the space, uh, we started, you know, in, in 2018, and we started as a game. And the idea was to say, you know, what if we built a game? It's like Pokemon Go for crypto, right? So instead of um, catching, you know, Pokemon, you're catching sort of crypto collectibles and, and tokens. And the idea was that you wouldn't even have to know that, uh, that you were playing with crypto, all you knew that you were playing a really, really fun game. And uh, we basically wanted to, and, and the broader vision behind that was I like wanted to put a crypto wallet on every phone, like similar to like what Microsoft wanted to do with like, we want to put a personal computer in every home. Like our vision was we want to put a crypto wallet on every phone. And, and, and the most viral way to do that was through a game. That makes it engaging, makes it easy, and then we can slowly incorporate crypto, uh, other crypto use cases into it. Uh, and the way we decided to like see if this was like even a compelling idea, and going back to the original point around MVPs, was like we actually just like built a, we like validated like would people like 
like how like the first we have to sort of like validate our riskiest assumptions, right? That's generally the framework that you know I uh, you know I try and use at TRM and we try and use at TRM, and 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 then I sort of when I talk to other founders, um, I encourage them to use as well. Is like what are your riskiest assumptions and how can you sort of de-risk them in the cheapest and fastest way possible? So like our first assumption is like, will people even want to get out of bed for crypto? Right? Like if, if I'm gonna have a Pokemon Go game, I need people to move. And will people move for crypto? And so what we did was we um, had an experiment in Berkeley where we like basically collected, we put up this landing page, we're like, hey, like we're doing this like flash sale, um, or like this, this drop, like we call it an airdrop. Um, uh, somewhere in Berkeley, and uh, at some time you'll get a text like sign up. Uh, and you know, all we used was Zapier, Twilio, uh, and probably like five dollars. And we, I think we ended up getting like a few hundred people sign up, and, and then uh, 60 people sort of like engage. And we had like this airdrop, and I think we had like 20 or you know, people show up when we like randomly in the middle of an afternoon. On Berkeley's campus, sent everyone a text to Twilio and said, "Hey, we're doing a drop." Um, and we saw people, and, and the stories were incredible. Like people were like sitting in bed watching Netflix, got out of bed for this. We had someone who was like on the way to the library, like step out. Uh, we had a person like like skip class. I basically was like, "Oh, this lecture is boring. I'm just gonna go check this out." Uh, and so that was like, "Oh wow, we just validated like our assumption that people will get out of bed for this." Um, there's something here. Um, and so just, that's just one example of like, you know, how, you know, instead of like building an MVP and going to Envision and hiring a designer and all this other stuff, um, you know, you can sort of validate some of the riskiest assumptions, uh, very cheaply, um, in order for, before you even like build your MVP. So like, I almost call it the pre MVP, like before you even build an MVP, right. You need to know what to build. Uh, and, and there's a lot of like validation that you can do, a lot of de-risking that you can do. Um, it doesn't require a lot of uh, money. Uh, and I think people, if they spend just a little bit more time thinking creatively, uh, will learn a lot. So let's say someone's listening to this, they heard that and they did their pre-MVP and they've mitigated some of their risk and um, they have some assumptions that they've almost proven and the only way to to fully prove their assumptions or at least to a point is to put something out into the into the atmosphere into the you know the interwebs and have mm -hmm. people try it um when do you when does an mvp need to be a, like an actual product um well actually let's back let's back up so mvp um minimum viable product is there a a version of an MVP that isn't actually enough of an MVP to validate assumptions? Can you go too light on an MVP or is it not possible to go too light on, on an MVP? No, I think an MVP is as long as it helps you prove or disprove something, right? Um, I think it's good. I mean, an MVP can be super targeted, right? It can be like, hey, I want to like, just, I just want to like prove or disprove like one key characteristic that I'm relying on. So say for example, um, you know, you are, um, you want, you're trying to like have this like um, loyalty program with like all the different like 
restaurants in in Denver, right? And you're like, you know, I, you know, there are a couple of ways you can do the MVP. You could actually like go build a product, right? Uh, or you can just literally, um, you know, give out gift cards, right? And and uh, and as long as like and say like, hey, would you sign up for the service? And like, we give uh, we give you a gift card every time XYZ users sign up with us. And all they have to do is maybe use some coupon code. It's like very unsophisticated. Um, and then you may not maybe retain your customers and it may turn out that the customer, you know, um, you know, they felt like there's too much, you know, too much uh, friction, whatever. But you learned something. You learned that, hey, like there are restaurants that are willing to like sign up and partner with us. This is like a real need for them. Uh, two, you realize that, hey, uh, I think, customers are wanting to do this. And there are some things that if I improve, I can maybe get them back. And so to, to answer your question, I really don't think there's like too light an MEP as long as it helps improve or disprove one small piece of your business. I think what people try and do actually is the opposite where they try and build an MEP that tries to like do too much and like test too many hypotheses at once. And in which case they have an MEP and they have no idea why it failed. Because like, oh, it could have been this, it could have been that, it could have been this. Versus like if you actually have MVP that actually like is narrower and like tests the riskiest assumption, you can actually iterate faster and actually avoid a lot of cost and pain um, in the long run. I like this. So it doesn't exactly matter what the MVP is. It could be a product, it can be a survey, it can be gift cards, it can be a conversation. But the the key here is that you need to go in to this test with an assumption that you are trying to prove or disprove and your MVP has to aid you with the process of, of proving or disproving. It can't just be random. But other than that, it, it doesn't exactly matter how how light or heavy the MVP is. Is that, is that pretty much what you're saying? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that yeah. look, there are exceptions to the rule and I think they're, you know, if you're trying to do a two-sided marketplace, like, you know, there, there are some, you know, edge cases and you have to figure that out. Um, but even there, I feel like, you know, there's a lightweight version uh, that you can do uh, uh, and learn a lot, learn a lot of the lessons that you would learn, you know, in six months, you can learn in probably one month. And that, uh, when you're in the MEP stage, it's all about the rate of learning and anything you do that slows down your rate of learning ultimately will prevent you from building a, a big business faster. So this is kind of an interesting kind of point in the process. That's one that I struggle with slightly. Uh, let's say you, so you did your, you did your pre-work, um, you did your pre-MVP, you have your MVP and you, you have validated that great. That, like, these people need this, that they, they have this problem and they maybe will have, will pay for a solution once it's built. Mm-hmm. What would you say is like is the next step there to great it's proven do you build a product do you build a distribution list do you keep do, do you keep testing until you know you're you're guaranteed to have the right answer like what do you do after that initial validation that you're onto something once you're onto something what do you do <laughs> yeah uh, it's, it's a good question and I think Paul Graham has a uh, has an interesting perspective on this, and and his point is basically, at every given point, like your role as a founder is to figure out what was your bottom, what is bottlenecking your growth, right? So, uh, 
you know, in, in your example, if, you know, you have this MVP, the question is, okay, well, how do I grow it, right? And, and, and what is that bottleneck, right? And so whether that's through customer discovery or uh, interviews with, you know, with customers uh, or just looking at like stats on your app or whatever, uh, you need to figure out what is bottlenecking growth for your app, right? And that could be like, hey, I need more outbound marketing if I'm like an SMB business. I need to get more supply on my, on my two-sided marketplace. Or, hey, um, you know, I need to have reviews. Like, people feel like I don't, they don't know what they're getting. Or, uh, hey, like, I need to, like, my biggest growth market actually turned out that it was in, um, you know, um, Kenya. And most people in Kenya have an Android phone. And I am only on iOS. Like, I need to ship Android and, like, maybe deprioritize iOS. And you shut it down entirely because my biggest growth market is outside you know, uh, the U S. Um, so like, it's, it's really hard to say like the one size fits all, like, but I think the framework would be to say, where is my bottleneck coming from? Like, what is the next thing that, that I would have to unlock, um, in order for my company to grow a little bit more. And then that will find me another bottleneck, right. In probably another business and have to go build that up as well. Uh, but basically once you have an MVP, you're now, out and you're now and just trying to grow you're just trying to grow um and you're trying to make sure that um the mep you have it has product market fit um okay uh i i like that a lot and i want to add something um just because i i feel like this area of the company creation process is the area i think i've hung out in the most um i've done i've taken like three ideas or i guess four ideas from an idea to decent revenue. I mean, a decent is obviously subjective, but like not, you know, a couple bucks, like actual real revenue. So I feel like I, I have a couple things I want to add just for people listening. Um, I think once you have um, your, your assumptions proven, um, what I've learned is, and I'd love your thoughts on this, man, but I, I think that a lot of people build products um, they focus too much on product and then when they, they are ready to release it or launch it, they don't really have anyone to launch it to or no one knows that they, that, that it exists. So what, what I've done in the past is while I'm doing my user interviews and testing assumptions, I'm simultaneously building a distribution list. So when I do have something that's like ready to go, I, I have people to tell about because the worst thing is when you have a product to launch it or to, to have it ready to go, but have no, no users, no distribution. Um, so that's one thing that's worked well for me. I just wanted to mention um, in that, like you, you got to have distribution as well as something to, to, to share, which is a product. So uh, cool. Uh, so let's uh, a couple, couple more questions um, in the realm of building MVPs and the earliest stages of a startup. Do you have any, uh, thoughts or opinions on this no code movement and do you think it's gonna it impacts the building of mvps or just the product development in general i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that like the low code no code sort of yeah like the like the low code no code like the web flow the the um the maker pad like i feel like there's a growth in 
in actual platforms that allow you to build pretty complex apps without needing to know how to code. And I think it's only happened in the last like, couple of years to have these complex of apps. So if, you're, if, if that's something that you're kind of paying attention to, would love to dive in. If not, that's totally cool. Yeah, no, look, I'm, I love it, right? I think the more people that can express their creativity, and this is also the ethos of crypto, right? Like, you know, code and the ability to like know how to code um, arbitrarily sort of limited the people that could express their creativity. Uh, at least with technology. And, um, and I think this is like incredibly empowering to have these low-code, no-code tools because it allows more people to get in the game. Definitely. Tools, have yeah. the creative ideas. And so I think it's incredibly powerful. This is a topic I've talked about with a couple of people on the podcast. Um, so I want to dive into the, the fact that it allows to get more people in the game. Um, so let's say no code tools allow 20 or 30 or 40% more people to build products that developers can currently only build. Do you think that something potentially, do you think becoming a developer, like a full stack developer going to school or going to a bootcamp, do you think that will be potentially like less necessary because no code tools will become so advanced? Or do you think that being a developer is still going to be really important and there's still going to be a, you know, a prime need for developers in the future? Yeah. Uh, you know, in my mind, you know, becoming a, a developer going to engineering school and there's sort of like two, two things, right? One is it teaches you obviously the, the raw skill of like, you know, ints and strings and like the, the nuts and bolts of sort of coding. But I think more importantly, it teaches you how to think like a programmer, how to like problem solve, uh, how to break down a large piece of problems into smaller atomic units. And I think, um, so I think there's one piece there, which is like, I think that just that, just going through some of these boot camps and, and becoming a better thinker uh, will ultimately make you uh, a better user of the local no-code tools. And then two, uh, as you communicate with your team of elf engineers, because at some point you will be using uh, your own tech, uh, it just makes you a better communicator uh, as well, because you can empathize and then also empathize with your team, but also more importantly, see the full potential of where technology could even take you. I think a lot of people that necessarily haven't um, you know, coded before might be wary, be like, oh, I don't want to like do this whole tech thing. I mean, too hard. It's not worth the investment. Versus if you're like sort of familiar and you see the power of technology, uh, it's incredibly sort of empowering for you as a leader, uh, a non-technical leader in your organization to, to sort of uh, contribute and, and, and be a, um, an advocate uh, for more adoption of technology uh, and, and tech services. I think that's number one. Uh, and I think number two, in terms of like, will, will coding jobs go out of business? Uh, I, I think the answer is no. I think that you will see a redistribution of, of some of the lower skilled jobs outside the United States, and you've already seen that. Um, but, and, and that's good for the world as a whole, uh, but I don't necessarily see engineers going out of business anytime soon. All right, that is a great way to kind of wrap up the specific MVP building section of the podcast. And I just have one more question for you before we before we hop off. 
Um, and the question is, how can the forward-thinking founders community help you? You got all these people listening that are like, by now they're trained to like know for this question and they're really willing and ready to help. So what's an ask you have for the community? Yeah, um, I think the first thing uh, is uh, for all the founders that are at, out there, um, I encourage you to stick with it. The more creative founders we have solving real problems for people uh, helps make the world better. So my first ask for you is to not give up and keep pursuing your dreams. Uh, the second is a more selfish ask. Um, we're hiring. So if you're interested um, across engineering and operations, um, we're hiring. So if you are interested in sort of future of crypto and future of finance in the, in the global economy, you know, shoot me a note. It's Rahul at trmlabs.com, um, or you can find me on Twitter as well. All right. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I feel like we went all over the place and learned, and I learned a ton all the way from cryptocurrency to building MVPs. So thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me.